0: There's a lot to be learned from uh, the passages we're going to be talking about tonight. The passage that I chose to focus on, um, he focused a little bit on the video, so some of what I'm going to share will touch a little bit more on some of those things that were said. Um, But as we begin tonight, let's just bow for a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you so much for giving to us your word that we might know specifically what it is you have for us. Thank you for giving us the tools that we need to live a life that is godly, to be a church that is vibrant and full of life and effective for you. And Lord, I just pray that you would touch each of us tonight as we focus on your word, that we would know better after tonight how to continue the worship that has taken place here for so many years, and we'll thank you for what you're going to do in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I thought we'd start a little bit with some review um, based on uh, the speakers that have been up. Um, Pastor Chad talked about uh, in session one, what is worship? He was saying that worship, uh, it is to give worth or value to something, and that we can worship with our time, with our resources, and our lives. And how all of our worship should be directed toward God because he alone is worthy. I think sometimes in the busyness of life we kind of forget the fact that there is an almighty God that we are here for. And that in the day-to-day life we can forget that the only purpose we truly have as human beings really is to give God the glory that he is due much less to gather together in a context like this to worship him. John Leaf in session two talked about the foundation of worship, saying that the gospel is the foundation of worship. It allows us to believe in and understand who we are to worship. The gospel actually changes us and empowers us to be able to worship God. And I think in some respects we may not even take into account the fact that without the gospel, we would have no purpose for even gathering in this room, at all. Uh, we've been going through a book, um, Compelling Community, in talking about the supernatural nature of the relationships that we can have because of the gospel. How many of us would naturally gravitate toward one another in relationships outside of the fact that we have a God that we worship and serve, serve together, and that he alone is the sole tie for us as believers. John also said God doesn't owe us anything. We don't come to, to church on a regular basis to get something from God. Um, I don't know how many times in my years in ministry I've um, heard a statement, usually in a sort of less than positive way, about someone saying they never got anything out of the service. And there's a little bit of my personality, my sinful human nature that wants to say to that person with a shaking finger saying, that's your fault. God doesn't owe us anything. And when we stop and think about what it says in Isaiah 64, that all the righteousness that we can bring in God's eyes is as filthy rags. A truly transformed heart, therefore, will have a desire to worship and serve God. That we should naturally, because of the new relationship we have with our Lord and Savior, desire to be here and to worship our great God. Kent, a few weeks ago, shared uh, worship and God's word. How the word of God leads us to worship. He shared that the Israelites had gotten so engrossed in the man-made rules that they had missed the point of God's word entirely and its intent for us to worship him. And that we see very clearly in the Israelites' practice that they had gotten so accustomed to following the do's and don'ts That the what-for was completely lost. Well, tonight we're going to look at the worship service itself. And we're going to start a little bit with perhaps uh, what uh, reasons people have for going to church. Now, this is going to be a list of things, some of them good, perhaps some of them not so good. What reasons do people have for going to church, good and bad, to worship God, to meet with other Christians, to enjoy singing, to take communion, to listen to Bible teaching, or because we always go, to be with other people, to meet my friends, to escape from the pressures of life, to have an experience of peace and beauty in in a beautiful building, or maybe because I will feel guilty if I don't go. And this one, I probably said this once or twice in my own life, my parents make me. And to top it all off, why do we go to church? At least me personally, because I'm the pastor. And yes, we have a responsibility. And yet you might be surprised how many people in conversation with me in my years in ministry look at me and say, well, you're paid to be there. And they're totally serious that I am here as a pastor on Sundays or Wednesdays or whatever night it might be simply because I'm a paid person to do so. Which is kind of insulting, quite frankly. Now one of the things that it asked in in the study guide that I was working through was this particular question that I found very uh, insightful. Imagine a church that is formal and reverent but joyless. Imagine coming to church every week and feeling all of the things that perhaps you should feel without any joy whatsoever in the worship that takes place here. And as I had said before, um, if we're not getting anything out of church, it's our own fault, not God's, not the pastor's, not the worship team. Um, none of those things. It's our own fault. We'll talk a little bit about the why of that as we work through some of these things. And I want us, to take your Bibles, if you have it, turn to Acts 2. Most of what I'm going to be focused on um, is coming from the Acts 2 passage. And he touched, um, several times in the video, touched on this particular passage, and I And I want to try and perhaps flesh out a little bit more what this passage really is entailing. Because I think sometimes we read through these passages of Scripture and perhaps forget the actual context of what this must have been like. I I am one of those that's always scratching my my head and asking questions like, what was it really like for them? What, what must it have been like on the day of Pentecost? And what did that really begin for the early church? So imagine a church that is formal and reverent, but joyless. Well, uh, point number one tonight is going to be the services for gathering the church. He, he touched on this a little bit in the video. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized... And there were added that day about 3,000 souls, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were gathered together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, when you stop, and we're going to talk a little bit more about the depth of what's just in those, those few verses, but does any of this sound formal, reverent, and joyless? And I would challenge our thinking to say, no, clearly it does not. When we stop and look at um, what actually happened in Acts chapter 2, going back a little bit earlier in the chapter, um, Peter's preached this great sermon after the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is one of those elements that I think perhaps that we kind of overlook or can tend to overlook. When you stop and think about what life was like prior to the day of Pentecost. Let's back up a little bit further. What was life like before the coming of Christ? Now, we have an omnipotent God. We have an omnipresent God. We have an omniscient God. And those are only three attributes that begin the attributes of God that we could spend days talking about. But this was a nation that began as a theocracy, ruled by uh, God himself, and a nation that, by and large, had God in their midst. They could see a representation of him, I've always been fascinated going way back to the exodus of thinking of what it must have been like for those Israelites to see that manifestation of God, to see the pillar of fire or the pillar of cloud and I can't imagine being in the camp and didn't they get up every morning and go "Mm, the clouds moving we gotta go What must it have been like back in the day when they could see a physical manifestation of God? Now stop and think about what that had been like. And without getting into all of the, oh, I can't believe all the Israelites really did and how they quickly forgot what God did. But there was a long span of time, centuries, where they did not have A physical manifestation from God, not even having word from God, from the prophets, for a long, long time. And then we have the incarnation of Christ. And some bought into and believed what he said. And there was that span of time in his years in ministry prior to his death where people were excited that they could see God. Even with all of that, you look throughout the Old Testament scriptures, and you don't see many times where there is an indwelling of the Holy Spirit. They do occur, but over the general um, scriptures, you don't see that indwelling, certainly over masses of people. You see it occasionally in individuals for specific purposes. And then we come to this chapter in Acts chapter 2. Christ, before he had gone back to heaven, said he was going to be sending someone to be with them. And they were waiting. I can't imagine what that was like either. Not even realizing or knowing, okay, what's going to happen? How exciting that must have been. And then it occurs in the beginning of this chapter. So if we look back at the beginning of 2, if I can get my pages separated here right in the first first verse, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all gathered together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided uh, tongues of fire, tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them, and they were all filled with the Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, no, I... I I don't think perhaps any of us in the room have experienced that. I've always wondered what that must have been like. But I can tell you, it must have been pretty exciting. It must have been pretty exciting for those that had committed themselves to Christ, believing the gospel, the basis for our worship, to see in full form yet another promise that Christ had made come to pass. They saw it happen. That's the beginning of the church as we know it. Now, we all these uh, millennia later have that same indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We don't have the divided tongues of, as of fire, and we don't have the mighty rushing wind. Well, there's been some wind last week, but not like that. But we have that same indwelling spirit that should inspire us in our worship, as we come. The service is for gathering the church. This church that was so excited in waiting for what did come. And you can see, as he mentioned some of these things in the video, looking at the things that um, they actually were partaking in. Those who received his word were baptized. That's thing number one. So clearly, somebody was proclaiming the gospel. Um, They were proclaiming the gospel because people were coming to Christ. People were believing the gospel. And those that were accepting God's word and accepting Christ were being baptized, they were studying God's word, they were sharing in their possessions. They were giving to common needs. They talk about them selling of their goods and sharing as needs were being proclaimed. They were daily in fellowship. They were gathering at the temple on a regular basis, not just at the end of the week, but daily. And they were gathering to praise God. Yes, as we look at 1 Corinthians 14, 33, where it says, "...for God is not a God of confusion but of peace." The worship should be orderly. And yes, the worship, should be, worship service should be held regularly. He uh, referenced Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit is of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You can see that this was believers. And as he'd said in the video, not that unbelievers should be or feel unwelcome, but that the gathering should be focused on this list of things. They were gathering consistently during the week so that the worship service was just the natural climax or culmination of what was taking place day by day. I don't know how many of you have had an opportunity for what I would call a cross cultural worship experience. Uh, I had shared, I think, the weekend we candidated about uh, the opportunity Amy and I had had to um, take a team to South Africa. And we got to see a completely different culture in how they worship. Um, and it was very unique. Now, the churches, that looked very much like most of us who are sitting in the room where the skin tones were light and everyone looked pretty much like we did felt very much like our worship service here the churches that we went to where the skin tone was very different and the language was very very different felt completely different they sang different songs Um, they danced, um, and yet we were able to see the joy of the Lord in the manner in which they worshiped because they were partaking as well in some of these things that bind us all together as one body of believers in the universal church. Just on a side note, I found it fascinating, and we got to attend worship service in, in two black South African churches while we were there, uh, the couple of weeks that we were uh, there in South Africa. And just as a, as a worship leader, I found it fascinating that their context of worship, even for the, the one church there were no instruments of any kind, um, the other one did have some instrumentation and they had some electronics so they had some microphones and that sort of thing, but in both contexts, and for you musicians that have ever participated as part of an ensemble, if you will, um, There was no music. There really wasn't even a list of songs for which they sang. There clearly wasn't PowerPoint or anything of that nature so that everybody was on the same set of lyrics. But somebody out in the audience would just begin to sing. And everyone would join in. And they joined in together as one body of believers. And I gotta tell you, there were some songs that they sang. I have no idea what they were singing. But you could tell there was joy. And you could tell that they were excited about being able to worship their God together as a body of believers. And this is a culture that, by and large, is very steeped in spiritism. And they would tell you, oh, yes, they believe in Jesus. But that's only one of the many gods that they would worship. For those that truly believe in the one God, their worship was was spectacular to be part of, but that culture was very, very different, and I touch on that for for one reason and one reason only. I I remember, and I think John touched a little bit on this as well. Years ago, I had been to, uh, with our state fellowship, a conference where they had brought in a musician, well-known musician, music writer, and he was speaking on music, a very, tends to be a very controversial issue, and churches, particularly in our construct, and in our context. And one of the things that he had said that really stuck with me for, um, it's got to have been 15 years ago now, he said, isn't it interesting that God gave to us his songbook referencing the Psalms, but he didn't give us the music. Full well-knowing that the list of things that we read here where we're proclaiming the gospel baptizing those that come to christ studying sharing together giving to common needs and so forth that is the portions of things that we should do regularly as part of our worship service observing the ordinances breaking of bread prayer praising god in an orderly fashion but the styles are going to be different. Cultures are going to be different. And I think in God's wisdom, he knew of those differences and that people would take the truths of what he did give us as to what we as believers should be partaking in. And it becomes our own culture. I know that despite the fact that I have been involved in a number of different churches, each of them has had its own different flavor. We each worship the same God. In many of those churches, we'd sing some of the same songs. Uh, Amy and I have learned a lot of new songs since we came here, Um, and that's good. It's a good challenge for me, but it's different than, in some ways, than what I've been accustomed to. God is a God of order, and he wants uh, to consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. Number two, our second point tonight, the service is for worshiping the Lord. As Pastor Chad had shared it, it is to give worth or value to God. Though as we stop and think about even that, we are simply acknowledging the truth. We don't really give God anything. He is worthy whether we give him that acknowledgement or not. It says in Psalm 96, verse 7, Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. And then in Psalm 95, verse 6, it says, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. And again, I go back to the original question. Does any of this sound formal, reverent, but joyless? I don't think so. I think many times in the churches in which I've served and in some of the churches that I've had opportunity simply to observe, it is very easy for us as individuals to become, I'll just put it out there, bench warmers. Where we can come, we sit, we'll sing, and we enjoy the, the preaching of God's word, and then we leave. And it's fascinating as a worship leader. If you've never had the opportunity, I think it would be kind of cool if we could figure out a way to do this. But if everybody could get at least one bird's eye view of the congregation as we sing. I think it's fascinating. There have been times when I'd be leading a worship service. We're singing joyful stuff, and I've got... Somebody's sitting three-quarters of the way back, no lips moving at all, just kind of sitting. And I'm, there's, a, there's a little part of me that's going, come on, did you not come with, with anything to, to bring to the table today? And it's not my place, responsibility, or even my ability to judge what's going on in that person's heart. But there needs to be, as we do these things before God, in the breaking of bread, in the praising of God, in the prayer and worship of him because he is worthy, there there should be some visual, emotional response. I think in some contexts, when Pentecostalism became kind of the rave years ago, um, evangelicals kind of swung so far the other way to avoid even the appearance of, of going Pentecostal, if you will, that we wiped out any appearance of that at all, so that there cannot be any emotion whatsoever expressed as we worship God together. I don't think that's what God intended, and quite frankly, I don't think that's what we as believers, even participating in a Sunday worship service, intend either. I did a, a message a couple of times at my church in in New York, talking about all of these things, specifically Old Testament for the most part, but referencing some of the the things that even in the New Testament talks about in the context of worship, where we are to sing, shout, clap, dance. And these are commands. Okay, this is God said, do this. And I get to the end of my message and say, okay, these are you know, if I had to dance, I'd be in trouble. I have, I have very Baptist feet. That just doesn't... And I'm not proposing that we start a dance troupe. Don't get me wrong. But it's kind of one of those things where you say, okay, God took special effort to say these are things when it comes to worshiping God should be done, and we clearly don't go there. Why? Someday I'll have to preach that message here, and we'll develop that at some point. That's not for tonight. No, it shouldn't be joyless. Let's move on to the third point. The service is for remembering the gospel. The service is for remembering the gospel. The gospel gathers people in by conversion. Believers respond by devoting themselves to the teaching that won them to Christ. This devotion to the gospel draws more people in. If you go back to that passage that we began with in Acts, it kind of starts with the baptism portion. But it assumes some facts not in evidence, so to speak, that people were coming to Christ to begin with. Well, and it says that earlier in the chapter to some degree that we had touched on a little bit, but the gospel was being proclaimed. That is our first and foremost task as a church. And I don't mean just here. It's not solely the pastor's responsibility to preach the gospel. We were talking about that even in our Sunday School class this morning. We each have a responsibility in daily living to be giving an example of Christ's love to everyone that we come in contact with, believer or otherwise. One of the things that it said in a guidebook that I thought I'd just read outright to you was this In the Old Testament, an elaborate system was set up to enable sinful people to get right with a holy God. The people could not approach God directly, they needed a priest to help them relate to God. The priest would make a sacrifice on behalf of people's sins and sprinkle the blood on the altar. The blood would turn away God's wrath against the sinner. Once a year, on the Day of Atonement, after an elaborate sacrifice, the high priest was allowed to go through the curtain in the temple to meet with God. For the thinking Israelite, this raised problems. How could an animal atone for the sins of a human? That was what God had set up. Now, we as believers, post... Christ's death and resurrection, understand that the sacrifice has been made, the atonement has been given, and we no longer need to do those things. But think about the fact that we now can and should come into the presence of Holy God directly. I think it might have been Pastor Chad that talked about the veil being rent in two. If you go back and look at that passage, it even talks about the fact that that veil was rent from top to bottom. As I understand the construction of that veil, it wasn't some piece of flimsy silk either. It was a massive piece of fabric that I think no human would have been able to tear. And the visual representation of the fact that we now have an open relationship with Almighty God should in some way inspire us as to how we come before Him on Sundays. The the gathering should recenter us on the gospel, primarily through the sermon, but also through participation in baptism and the Lord's Supper. These are elements that consistently remind us of the message of the gospel. Number four, the service is for also shaping the church, shaping the church, shaping us as a body of believers. Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 15, it says, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. To which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. These are things we are to do. How that manifests itself is going to be different in any church congregation. But these are the things that we are to do in a church service. This happens as we study and become more like Christ as individuals. That's the day-to-day things that we talked about from the, from the Acts passage. They were gathering together in the temple on a regular basis, not just on the weekends. This also happens as well when we study together and become more like Christ as a body of believers, a local church body so that we are shaped as a local church body to be more like him. And lastly, I want to talk about this. My time's about gone anyway. The service is for sending on mission. Now, I want to go back to our passage, Acts chapter 2. Sending on mission, and he referenced this a little bit in the video as well. Acts chapter 2, again, beginning in verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized And there were added that day about three thousand souls. Anybody overwhelmed by that, in and of itself? Have you ever stopped to think about what it must have been like for there to be a conversion of three thousand people? I remember at one point, month or so ago, asking Pastor Chad if he had seen the the video Itau, and I learned a little bit about the history of that verse and or that that video and that missionary and connection to St. John's and so forth. And and I remember watching that movie and seeing this this mass of people that suddenly were overwhelmed with God's forgiveness and the near hysteria that it showed in their realization. 3,000 people, folks. Contemplate that and what their worship must have been like. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. I think that's something that we could learn from, the awe of the God that we worship and serve. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed uh, were together and, uh, and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds, as, um, proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the aftermath of what happened with the oncoming of the Holy Spirit. I think in our finite human thinking, we can read that 3,000 souls and figure, hey, the early church was about 3,000. Not when you get to the last couple of phrases. Because it says, day by day, those who are being saved. So should that be reflected as well for us as believers in this day and age? Absolutely. We perhaps take the indwelling of the Holy Spirit for granted because we believers never have known what it was like not as believers to have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But we have a supernatural almighty God that indwells us, enables us, enlightens us, teaches us that we should be sharing with those around us so that we would be seeing souls added day by day and being baptized and added to the church. What we read in these verses is simply the beginning of the early church. It was not a one-time occurrence, but a regular way of life. The thousands that came to Christ that we hear of in these verses came because of the sharing of the gospel message. Now what happens in our worship service should have that same inspiration that we go out of this place. And share what God has done in our lives so that others can be transformed just like we have. Oh, Pastor Mike, I really don't know how to share the gospel. Baloney. Did you come to Christ? If you came to Christ, then sharing your faith is only saying, hey, this is what happened to me. If somebody's got a question you can't answer, guess what? That's okay. Okay. Because if you think I have all the answers, I have news for you. But you know what? We're also a body of believers that can pray for and help one another. And there may be somebody else in the building that does have an answer if you don't, if you don't have one. But the inspiration that we have because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, much less as a local body of believers who is in awe of this almighty God that we worship tonight, should change us not only when we're here but day to day in our living how we live day to day should be overcome by those things it can be inferred in this passage of scripture that what we read in Acts chapter 2 should be us. Should be our church. Okay, we're going to have a hard time getting 3,000 people in here. But we should be excited about the possibility that that could happen. Okay, if we can't fit them all in here, we'll have to build another church someplace. I think God would be okay with that. But we need to be just as inspired as those early church believers because we have been just as saved by the grace of God as they have. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, thank you so much for giving to us your word that we might know exactly how to live our lives before you. May, as we have talked about tonight, may we come away with such an awe of who you are just who you are, much less what you have done for us, that we are just inspired to worship and serve you in a way that we've never done before. May we, in a day-to-day living way, share the gospel every opportunity we have, that you might be honored and glorified, that when we gather together as a body of believers, our hearts just sh- soar because we are so excited to see what you are doing in and amongst us. We thank you for what you have done in us and for what you are going to do in and through us as a body of believers in St. John's. In Jesus' name, Amen. Would you rise to your feet as we close tonight? We're going to be singing a hymn that you know to a tune that you know but it's not the tune that you think it is. Let's (laughs) sing that together.